I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I'm John Schwartz, a writer for The Intercept. I'm filling in for Ryan Grimm this week. This week, the only thing we are going to be talking about is Twitter. Here is something that was written by a famous linguist named Edward Sapir in a book published 101 years ago in 1921. Everything that we have so far seen to be true of language points to the fact that it is the most significant and colossal work that the human spirit has evolved. Language is the most massive and inclusive art we know, a mountainous and anonymous work of unconscious generations. I think that that is true about language, and I also believe that that's true on a smaller scale about Twitter. Twitter is a giant work of art created by hundreds of millions of people working together for free without realizing what they've been doing. Uh, Like language, it has innumerable subcultures that all have developed their own weird patois that's incomprehensible to outsiders. And like with language, anybody can participate in this form of art, and if enough other people like what you came up with, it can spread across the world. And like anything involving human beings, it has an extremely ugly side to it. But I personally believe that that has been outweighed by the artistry of everyone involved. That is why it would be a tragedy, for real, if Twitter's new owner, Elon Musk, destroys it. So I'm going to be talking to two people today. Mike Leonard, a reporter at Bloomberg Law, who's been reporting about the basic financial realities of Twitter's future. And then Ken Klippenstein, an investigative reporter at The Intercept, about the incredible amount of happiness that Twitter has brought to him and to me and millions of other people. So let's get started with Mike Leonard. He's a reporter on the legal intelligence team at Bloomberg Law, where he covers antitrust litigation and business disputes in Delaware's Chancery Court. Mike, welcome to Deconstructed. Thanks for having me. So uh, first of all, let's talk about Delaware's Chancery Court, which is something that many people, including me, had honestly never heard of before all this. And in fact, I didn't even know how to say Chancery. I, I just, you know, like Googled it three minutes ago. So for anyone who hasn't been following the twists and turns here, uh, Musk originally agreed to buy Twitter back in April for $44 billion. Then he almost immediately tried to back out of it. Then Twitter sued him in the Chancery Court in Delaware to make the deal go through. That suit was about to be decided when Musk suddenly said, "Okay, I am going to buy Twitter on the deal's original terms. So first of all, I'm wondering, like, what is the Chancery Court? What happened with the suit? And is the court so powerful that if Musk had lost, it would have been able to force him to buy Twitter against his will? So I I like to tell people that uh, Delaware Chancery Court is where the country's biggest and best companies go to get sued. It's a court specializing in a particular type of business dispute involving shareholders who claim that boards of directors have been asleep at the wheel um, or have been uh, engaging in self-dealing. A lot of M&A transactions get challenged there. A lot of these deals, uh, shareholders will claim that the board... uh, accepted a lower price for the company in exchange for benefits for themselves, like participating in the deal on the buyer side, or even just a good old um, golden parachute. To take your last question, um, y- yes, the, course, the court absolutely could have forced the deal to close. That's, that's rare, 
but the court has that power, and that's that's what Twitter was seeking. They wanted what's called a specific performance of the contract, which just means make Elon Musk uh, do what he what he contracted to do. Okay, so Elon Musk came through, bought Twitter for forty four billion dollars against his will. How much of that did Musk pay? Who were his co-investors and how much money did he borrow and from whom? Like, do we actually know the specifics of all of this? Um, so I don't have the specific number Musk paid himself off the top of my head, but he and his co-investors paid about $31 billion of that. And his co-investors include a Saudi prince, various Silicon Valley uh, luminaries, a lot of private equity firms and venture capital firms. And he borrowed... Um, almost $13 billion from a consortium of uh, seven major banks led by led by Morgan Stanley. Right. And as I understand this kind of deal, normally the banks would quickly sell off this debt to others, right? They wouldn't hold it themselves for so long. Uh, but as far as we know, they still have it, right? Normally they would. And uh, by all accounts, they plan to as the deal was was being hashed out. And even, even while litigation was underway over the deal. But the the market, the debt markets have sort of abruptly soured, not really because of anything happening at Twitter. It more has to do with macroeconomic factors. The way the Fed is trying to uh, fight inflation has has made um, other investing options more attractive, which means that it's harder to, to sell to sell debt, this type of debt. And there have been, you know, sort of discussions, right, about the price that people would be willing to buy this debt at, right? They wouldn't be willing to buy it at face value, they, they would only pay a certain lower percentage for it. Yeah, the, the, the latest reporting I've seen, and, and uh, I, don't, I don't want events, events to overtake me, but I saw that sort of the, the buyers for this type of debt are, are kind of hedge funds and sophisticated investors, and um, they don't want to go right now above 60 cents on the dollar, uh, which is very low by historical standards. And the banks reportedly, this is not my reporting, but reportedly don't want to go below um, 70 cents. So they're going to hold on to it for now and um, kind of hope that either as the market changes next year or as Elon Musk announces a more concrete turnaround plan for Twitter or as as uh, as Twitter just sort of obviously stabilizes, if it does, um, that they'll be able to get that the banks are hoping they'll be able to get um, closer to what they're looking for for the debt. Right. Uh, but even, you know, even at 70 cents on the dollar, that's a huge loss for the banks. Yeah, and that's and that's also a very low figure historically. Mm-hmm. And so, how much interest, according to this deal, does Twitter have to pay its debt holders every year? About one point two billion dollars a year, just in just in the interest. Right. And so, Twitter's finances were not great to begin with. It was kind of a crummy business. Like whatever you think of Twitter itself, just as a business, it was not super duper profitable. In fact, it was it has only been profitable two years in its history. And so the idea that you're going to take this business and then then load on this huge amount of, of required interest payments you know, seems pretty dicey. And uh, that's one of the reasons I would expect that Musk himself has told Twitter employees that it's possible that the company will go bankrupt. And what, what happens if the creditors themselves, whoever holds the debt at that point, like decides that that's possible? So we have not seen the um, the loan documents themselves. They're not public, but uh, experts I, I spoke to for my reporting um, made some educated educated guesses about what's in those documents based on the sort of pledges and covenants that are in virtually all all similar loan documents. 
so just to back up a little bit, when, when my editor and I started reporting out this story, we wanted to make sure not to get ahead of ourselves and to emphasize that any action by lenders or the creditors they farm out the debt to is not imminent. They've just bet big on, on Musk and on Twitter, and they wouldn't want to jeopardize their investment just because they got a little skittish right away. Um, but over the medium term, if they get the idea that Twitter isn't going to be able to pay its debts, to pay, with a pretty staggering uh, annual debt service. First of all, if Twitter misses a payment, uh, these loans probably give, almost certainly give the banks the right to uh, accelerate the full principal, which is, means demand demand repayment of, of the full amount immediately. And those rights will carry with the loans, so anybody, anybody who buys the debt will also have that right. And when I was speaking to experts about sort of uh, what would what are these creditors going to be looking for? How are they going to know if they need to take some kind of action? We, we were kind of talking about um, indirect ways they might be able to tell that Twitter was struggling. We were not expecting um, Elon Musk to come out about an hour after the article was published and say, hey, guys, we may be going bankrupt soon. Um, so that would certainly be, be a red flag. So wh- whoever holds the debt at that point, they could demand, uh, demand full repayment. It's probably more likely, according to the the finance experts I spoke to, that there would be some sort of uh, debt restructuring. And those debt restructurings could get creative. They could involve efforts to basically have a, a it's very technical and complex, and I'm not an expert in it, but the basic idea is you get 51% of creditors to approve a plan that leaves 49% of them empty-handed, uh, and in exchange, the 51% uh, get a pretty good deal. But these these hedge funds have seen this movie before, and that would probably prompt litigation right away. They would sue for for breaching the debt agreements, and they would throw everything at, at the wall there. Yeah, it seems kind of incredible to me that there would be any way to set up a deal like that where you would leave, you know, like like almost half of the debtors with nothing. Uh, and so I can only imagine the amount of litigation that would grow out of that. Yeah, I, I had somebody refer to it as a, a battle royale of debt restructuring. Somebody else called it the the war of all against all. Um, I, I was doing a little bit of research for for this article, and I saw that it's it's frequently called to as lender on lender uh, referred to as lender on lender violence. Uh-huh. But um, I think the point, as far as Elon Musk is concerned, is that whoever buys this debt, they're going to be sophisticated investors who probably aren't going to want to going to want to be pitted against other investors. They're not going to want to let it get that far. Um, and, and they would probably sue to halt the restructuring as soon as they smelled one. So in an article that you wrote recently about this, uh, you said that, that if Twitter's creditors sour on Musk, a breach would give lenders significant leverage, perhaps enough to sideline him as a condition of waiving the covenants, unless he wants to pay off the loans personally. Uh, and you uh, attribute this to a Berkeley law professor. Yeah, the the idea would be just that because these covenants that, again, we haven't seen these documents, but every expert I spoke to uh, assumed something like this was in them, because the covenants give the, the banks or whoever, whoever they sell the debt to the right to um, demand immediate repayment of the full principal, they've got a lot of leverage there. The banks don't want to go, go nuclear. They've, they've just put all this money into this. They want it to succeed. And I, I should add that while everybody I spoke to was quite critical of the way Musk has run Twitter, everybody I spoke to, uh, well, almost everybody I spoke to also had a lot of, uh, uh, made the point that if anybody deserves a long leash, it's probably Elon Musk. He has done some amazing things at SpaceX and at Tesla. And a lot of the, uh, a lot of his, his value here is sort of the Musk mystique. 
and you know they the banks have bet have bet big on his success and they probably wouldn't wouldn't want to accelerate repayment they wouldn't want to demand the 13 billion um but they but they would have that leverage there would be negotiations over what musk or twitter would have to do to get those to get those clauses waived and yeah. and it, it could go all the way to minimizing musk's role if if that you know if the negotiations went in that direction and if musk were willing to accept that we we we've started to see in the last three weeks that he's he really wants to be very involved with Twitter. So I don't know if, if it would actually pan out that way, but it's certainly a possibility. Right. And of course, there's the the old joke about how, you know, if you owe a bank uh, $10,000, that's your problem. But if you owe the bank $10 million or let's say $12 billion, that's their problem. Very much. And so you, you bring up Tesla. And the important thing I think to understand about this dynamic is that it doesn't just involve Twitter, it also involves Tesla. So can you talk a little bit about that and, and, and what you heard from people that you, t- you spoke to? Yeah, so um, Musk is on trial right now. And, well, I, I shouldn't say Musk is on trial. Uh, his, his salary is on trial, his Tesla salary, or uh, salary is not even the right word. His Tesla compensation package is on trial right now in Delaware Chancery Court, which we mentioned earlier. The trial um, is being overseen by the same judge who was who presided over uh, the Twitter versus Musk case. Um, they, they in fact met in person for the first time this week when he testified uh, yesterday, and he's being paid. This is a challenge to an options award um, uh, that turned out to be worth fifty six billion dollars. And the Tesla shareholder leading the case is basically saying he's a he's a part time CEO, and uh, this is an unprecedented pay package, and it's it's just we're basically spending company value on uh, taking it away from shareholders and putting it in Elon Musk's pocket for work he didn't do. And the, the defense has been, he's spread very thin, his attention's very divided, and we need to pay him this much to keep him engaged. Um, so you can see how the events of the past few weeks kind of play into both arguments. That uh, This idea that, look how easily distracted he, distracted he is. Um, is that, in fact, a, a defense argument? Well, this case is not really about what's going on at Twitter this week, but but yes, the entire the main defense theory of the case is that we needed to pay him this much money to keep him uh, engaged at, at Tesla, given all his other ventures. <laughs> you have to understand, he just doesn't care about this company that much, so we have to pay him a lot of money to think about it. Uh, that <laughs> that is incredible. In, in so many in so many words, and and right. you can see them saying. See, we told you so. Look how he's acting now. But you could also see the plaintiffs saying, well, if $56 billion isn't going to keep his attention, why aren't we just paying him a dollar? Now, this case isn't really about his behavior at Twitter, uh, but I, I did speak to one expert who, who said, described Tesla investors as kind of lining up to bring similar claims. And uh, another one who said it's not hard to imagine them claiming in, in the expert's words that he was too busy putting out the grease fire at Twitter uh, to run Tesla properly. Um, now it did emerge in this trial, a Tesla board member who happens to be a, a son of Rupert Murdoch, uh, said that Musk has a name for a, a CEO at Tesla. So this may neutralize some of these concerns. They didn't say what the name is, but they said that Musk has selected one. So that's the, the most direct risk from Tesla shareholders. But, um, Tesla stock is also down a huge amount since Musk stepped into the Twitter deal. He sold a lot of stock and there is this idea I mentioned earlier that the Musk mystique is very valuable to all of his companies and and that if he's sort of pulling back the curtain on himself, you've probably heard people saying things like, boy, has he, has he been running te- Tesla like this all along? I, I did speak to ex- experts who say, you know, 
if a Tesla shareholder uh, could make that case that that Musk has uh, damaged his repu- his reputation as a business genius, and that hurts Tesla too. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I've I've seen estimates of you know, sort of the the value of the Musk brand that are in the tens of billions of dollars. And if he destroys that on its own, the, there would be a, a lot of very unhappy Tesla shareholders. Yeah, and some of this is about the selling pressure from the, the uh, nearly $40 billion in Tesla stock he's sold to finance the Twitter deal. Um, and, but some of it may not be about that. It's hard to figure, to know exactly why shareholders move the way they move. But some of it may be what I, I saw uh, a headline called uh, Twitter jitters. And just this idea that Musk is unmasking himself as something less than, than the genius he seemed to be, and that's going to that's gonna have an effect on Tesla's value. Right. Well, no, no one knows the future, of course, but it certainly does seem to be the case that Musk has jumped into a trap that he built for himself. And the, the vice of the basic financial reality of Twitter is clearly closing in on him. And it's an incredible story. Uh, Perhaps it may end up being an incredible story of self-destruction where he loses tens of billions of dollars on Twitter itself. Uh, He loses control of Twitter. And then as a side effect that he is no longer CEO of Tesla. And uh, so that that will certainly be a business story uh, for a very long time if that comes to pass. And uh, I'm, I'm sure the Netflix documentary or dramatization or both is already in the works. Yes. Uh, every every as I said, um, every everybody I spoke to suggested a scenario like that was on the table, um, even though they were all they also cautioned against dancing on his, his business grave prematurely because they, they did all point out that he's, he's got, he's got all this, all the, the confidence of, of invest, you know, all these in, co-investors he've got, he's got, they're probably not, not in it to make a dollar on Twitter. Um, according to everybody I spoke to, they're probably in it because they want to get in good with Elon Musk on the theory that, that it's profitable to, to get in good with Elon Musk. So there are a lot of very smart and very rich or I should say very smart and or very rich people think that believe in the turnaround, the Twitter turnaround story that Musk is selling. Um, but there are, there are also a lot of, a lot of red flags. Yeah. And, and I mean, I, I'm sure that that was part of the psychology. Uh, we don't need to speculate about what they were thinking, but, uh, even if that was their perspective, you know, one of the big co-investors in Twitter is Larry Ellison who put in a billion dollars, it seems. And I just can't imagine him, uh, you know, like, like I'm, I'm happy to lose a billion dollars, you know, just to be buddies with Elon. Well, that's true. Some people, some people probably need, need that in uh, less than others, but, but you're right. People who are as, as rich and powerful as you could ever imagine being, it is hard to, hard to see them throwing away a billion dollars just to get close to him. So, so somebody uh-huh. believes in this deal. Uh, to the tune of a billion dollars. All right. So as we said, nobody knows the future, but this is an incredible story. No matter what you think about Elon Musk, no matter what you think about Twitter, no matter what you think about Tesla, uh, it's an amazing tale of uh, human folly and perplexing decisions. And, you know, I don't know, possibly human triumph at the end. Who can say? Uh, But Mike, uh, thank you so much for joining us on Deconstructed, and we look forward to uh, following your reporting on this in the future. Thanks so much for having me on. 
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. That was Mike Leonard, a reporter on the legal intelligence team at Bloomberg Law. All right, Twitter will hopefully survive Elon Musk's reign of terror, but in case it totally collapses, we wanted to think about all the good times that people have had thanks to Twitter. And there's no one better for this than someone who I see as one of Twitter's premier users, someone who has invented several new forms of jokes that could only exist on Twitter. And that is The Intercept's own Clip Einstein. Hey, good to be with you, John. <laughs> yeah, that itself is just a little joke for people who use Twitter too much. I'm actually talking to Ken Klippenstein, who is an investigative reporter at The Intercept. Uh, Ken, maybe we could start with you explaining why I just called you Clip Einstein. Um, that actually is my name now, because that's what Elon Musk called me. And it seems like billionaires can just decide to make reality what they want it to be. So that's what I'm that's what I'm going by now, Clip Einstein. No, but he uh, he called me that a couple of years ago when I tweeted out a picture of him standing next to Ghislaine Maxwell that he wasn't very appreciative of. And he tried to, at the time, it's kind of interesting. He said, I was photobombed. I had no say in any of this. We, you know, I didn't speak to her. And actually, the New York Times reported just last month, I think, that not only had he, you know, spoken to her, but there was that was memorialized by his aides at the time, and that was only that was only reported very recently. So fake news. He wasn't photobombed, or at least uh, his his interactions with her went beyond what he had said at the time. And um, after I tweeted that picture, then he called me uh, Clip Einstein and douche about town. He was really upset about it. That's right. Clip Einstein, pseudo-journalist and douche about town. That's right. Pseudo-journalist. <laughs> and it, like that to me is just sort of everything that is wonderful about Twitter all at once. Because, you know, before Twitter, like I'm so old when if you wanted to make fun of rich and powerful people, you had to try to like write a letter to the newspaper. <laughs> and what Twitter made possible is that you could like insult them directly and there's a real possibility that they would see it and get upset about it, as Elon Musk, the world's richest man, absolutely did, and then reveal themselves to be who they truly are. And one of the things about Elon Musk that is, you know, indisputably true is that he is absolutely desperate for people to see him as funny, and he is not. Yeah, or most of his memes, which themselves aren't funny, not actually his. They're just stuff cribbed from like Reddit. Yeah, that, no, that, there's no question that that's true. Like, like even his unfunny jokes are not even original to himself. And you would think that being the richest person on earth would 
allow you to be like, okay, like I'm not that funny, but still I'm ultra wealthy, but it doesn't like the insecurity of these people is incredible. And that is one of the most beautiful things about Twitter from my perspective. And I suspect from yours as well. (laughs) Yeah. When that happened, I remember thinking to myself, how much longer is this platform going to be allowed to exist? (laughs) You know? And I guess, I guess we're finding out the answer to that, uh, in these last several weeks, which is, uh, not very much longer. I mean, the, the thing that is most incredible to me about Elon Musk buying Twitter is that it looks as though he is kind of like a toddler who demanded that his family like get him a baby duck. And he loves the baby duck so much that he hugs it so hard that he kills it. <laughs> I saw more of a King Canute thing. If you're familiar with the King Canute story, it's some King, some old myth where he's telling his aides to, to he doesn't like that the waves are coming ceaselessly at the shore. And so he tells them, go stop the wave, send the, send the ocean back out. And so they, all his aides go out and try to do it. Don't have very much luck. And I guess the point of the story is that people with extraordinary amounts of power uh, start to think that they can control things that they just can't. They can't think of a better illustration for <laughs> what we're seeing right now. Yes. I, I, I think that is completely true. And you know, so so that's a wonderful thing about Twitter that you can you can yell at rich and powerful people and they get mad. And another thing is that they can communicate directly to us without their phalanx of PR people that usually surround them and reveal themselves to be enormous dummies. Like I I remember uh, Rupert Murdoch tweeted out a picture a couple of years ago, you know, from the window of his private jet as he was flying over the North Pole and and there was, you know, ice beneath him. And and he just tweeted out, global warming. (laughs) Like there's there's ice at the (laughs) North Pole. Uh, Therefore, we can forget about all this global warming nonsense. Just look at it. So anyway, uh, as I say, I look at you as someone who took Twitter in directions that no one had imagined before. And I would like you, if you could, just to describe some of your favorite Twitter techniques, maybe uh, starting with your uh, classic Veterans Day tweets. Well, I can't take much credit because I really think that the people at the other side of the joke are doing most of the work. And in the practical jokes that I have done, I try to make it so that there's every possible out for the person. Like, you know, tweeting out, can I get a retweet from my uncle, uh, Colonel Jessup? And then it's a picture of Jack Nicholson from A Few Good Men. I'm trying to make it really easy. So I'm not cheap shotting anyone. And they have every chance to recognize, you know, one of the most iconic moments in American film. And as it turns out, um, then Congressman Steve King, who's always going on about American history and how, you know, immigrants don't have appreciation for American culture, doesn't recognize this like extremely iconic moment in American film. And ends up uh, shouting out uh, Colonel Jessup, who I think said was keeping us safe this Fourth of July or something like that. And so that's that's kind of the the genre of all of them. It's just these really easy, underhanded pitches for them to just not fall for. And turns out that a lot of people do. And it turns out that a lot of our leaders don't recognize famous figures from history, such as uh, someone you might have heard of, Lee Harvey Oswald, someone else that uh, elected officials didn't recognize, or. Or William Calley, um, one of the most infamous war criminals in U.S. history from the Vietnam War. It turned out that then intelligence chief under the Trump administration, Rick Grinnell, didn't recognize not only the photo of him, but also the name. Can I get a retweet from my uncle Bill Calley? And so uh, he went for that one, too. It's a little frightening, like how little basic history the people that run our 
society ha- that run the country have? <laughs> yeah, and, and just you know, for people who have not treated themselves like like to this genre of Twitter comedy, you know, it's just you tweeting pictures like generally like Lee Harvey Oswald in his Marine uniform, like a picture of him where he is, you know, recognizable, you would think, to anyone familiar with basic American history. Well, particularly conservatives who are always going on about how they're teaching too much woke stuff, we're not learning American history anymore. They fall for these things. And again, I try to make it so easy because I don't want to be picking some cheap shot kind of thing. Like, I want to make it so that it's like any ordinary person would know what it is. And these guys of all people who are always going on about, we got to get school curriculum back to teaching people 101 of what American history is. They don't recognize these things. And so I wonder what's what's in their head as they're legislating and, and deciding what the legal apparatus for the society looks like. And it's not being informed by these very basic ABCs of, of American history. Yeah. I, like, and I hate, I hate to rag on Jimmy Carter, but he said, you know, decades after he was president about some of his policies in Central America. And I was like, you know, I wish I wish before I'd been president, I'd known more about the history of the United States in Central America. <laughs> I was like, I bet, I bet the people in Central America wish you'd known more too. The faraway land, Central America. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, I, I don't know what I was doing before I was president, but it certainly wasn't reading any books about US history. But, but anyway, so that's what I think is amazing about your use of Twitter there, where is like you're... you're making these people who are ridiculous look as ridiculous as they actually are. But it also has a point to it. The one that, you know, you're just describing, like they, like they actually don't know anything about the country that they live in. And from what I can tell, like like your use of Twitter, like truly enhances your ability to report on things. And you are one of the very few people who uses Twitter in this way. And so can you talk a little bit about that and how it works? Yeah, it could be a really good way to crowdfund sources, basically. I mean, I'll just do a call out for tips. Like, I'll give you an example. Back during Amazon, I don't remember what happened. There was some news article about the working conditions and people were talking about, which is true and had been reported, um, how Amazon workers had to urinate in in bottles to be able to meet these bruising uh, production quotas in order to keep their jobs. And the Amazon PR, some, I think maybe it was the spokesperson said, you don't really believe that, do you? No one would be working here if that was the case. And I was so irritated by that because I knew, as many people did who'd read the reporting, that you know the, those conditions, that's factually true, that has happened in these factories. So I just did a call out for tips, and I was completely inundated by people from corporate that knew things, people in the warehouses that knew things, contractors that knew things that, that contradicted at levels far beyond what I even thought was the case. So it's not only that they're urinating, people are defecating in bags and route to deliveries because they don't have time. Like it was way worse than even I thought. And I had a pretty dim view of, of working conditions in Amazon. And that, you know, I do a lot of national security reporting. That's where my source base is. I don't have, I didn't have many labor sources, but I, it was just an avalanche of angry workers who, you know, knew, knew as well as anyone the specifics of what was going on. And they just reached out to me on Signal when I put my signal number up and I was able to pull together a bunch of evidence to just like forensically go through that's here's why what the Amazon PR is saying is untrue. And here's, here's precisely how, and here's like a dozen examples of, of it. Yeah, that's right. And and it is so obviously like, like a powerful tool for reporting. And yet if you are a, a regular reputable reporter at a reputable outlet, i.e. like not us, uh, <laughs> Almost no one uses it. And so the question is, is why? Why do you think that is? 
Um, they're socialized a certain way. I was never properly socialized. I didn't go to J school. I've always been a bit of a scrapper. And uh, crucially, I talk to people you're not supposed to talk to. I think that you know, if if you come up through the formal system, you're encouraged to call public affairs, ask the spokesperson what they think, you know, maybe speak to the executive. I mean, if the the idea of actually talking to people, you know, and how I approach, I said before, I'm a national security reporter. I talk to a lot of rank and file intelligence officers, military officers. They give you a very different picture than the senior executive leadership that you know conventional news outlets rely on. That you'll see on cable news, they give you a very different perspective on things, and it's not so much that it differs. Politically, it's just that they're on the ground doing things and have a much different point of view than talking to someone in the senior executive uh, C-suite of Amazon would uh, versus talking to not only people in the in the warehouses, but even just like people that work corporate that are working white collar, but aren't necessarily, you know, these Northwestern University business MBA grads. Um, you just talk to just like... You, you know, the rank and file among the among the corporate side, and you'll still get a much different picture, just as long as you're not talking to the very people, the, the people at the very top that end up in Fortune magazine and the like. And Twitter can be really, really good for that because it's, a, you know, it's a relatively horizontal platform where you can message pretty much anybody and, and communicate with them. And so I found that to be, you know, I'm, I'm not I'm not a tech utopian at all. I've never been somebody who thought that, you know, these social media platforms are going to allow us to bypass a lot of problems that are political in nature by any means, but it does at least give you the opportunity if you want to take advantage of it, to just reach out to and speak to ordinary people and hear about their experiences. And that's really all I do with it. It's not very complicated. Yeah. And as I say, I I think that one of the reasons that the properly socialized journalists don't understand this is is also that they don't understand that there's been a big cultural shift in the United States where, as you know, I would say like, like 30 years ago, 20 years ago, you wouldn't think like, you know, well, I bet there are a bunch of people who work at the NSA who have a sense of humor, like, and, and have a sense of humor about like what they do in their jobs. And I guess probably they did in the past, but the, the kind of people who would work in these government jobs had, had not themselves been marinating in a certain kind of American culture for a long time. And that that culture is like like the one that you are using in your funniest tweets. And I wonder if you think that I'm right about this. Oh, that's 100% true. This attitude that people have, I mean, I talked before about being a national security reporter, this idea that the intelligence community is like separate from the rest of the culture is not really true. I would say at the senior executive levels, yes, they're, they think they can levitate and they're in a completely different universe than the rest of us. And, and, you know, as a, as a young Naval officer friend of mine told me they're in a, they're in a world of their own making. So yes, at the very highest echelons of power, that's, that's true. But among the sort of rank and file, they're a lot like the rest of us. And, and, you know, there are variegated political attitudes and sympathies and concerns, just like any other institution that you can think of. So, I guess that's been a big learning experience for me as a reporter is realizing how not monolithic institutions are, even if it's even right to the level of like the CIA. I'll hear some really funny stories from people at the agency that, that, you know, I grew up watching like Jason Bourne and all this stuff and you have a certain impression of it. And then you start to meet them and you realize, you know, I mean, yes, it's an unusual institution and idiosyncratic in a lot of ways, but then there's like things that would remind you that remind you of any dysfunctional, office workplace that you can think of to an almost comic degree. And, and in a way, Twitter has just been a channel for me to reach people like that. 
Yeah, I've always believed that the CIA, from from what I can tell, is like, you know, just imagine the U.S. Post Office, except it operates totally in secret. Like, what, what, kind, of, what kind of things would that kind of institution get up to? And like, that's the CIA. Yeah, no, I think that's a great way to put it. And so uh, I, I think, you know, both of us have gotten an enormous amount of enjoyment out of Twitter. I wonder if you can talk about, like, like are there any particular Twitter accounts that you recommend people follow j- just for the pure joy that they give you? Um, I'd really like this account, Lib Crusher. <laughs> the, the, the handle is pretty telling. I mean, there's so many. I mean, there's the familiar ones everybody likes, like Drill. I don't know. <laughs> I'd probably just name a lot of the same ones that... Other people follow, but one of the most amazing things is how the the things probably that in the aggregate make me laugh the most is just small. It's almost like the Howard Zinn thing. It's these small accounts with names no one will ever remember end up constituting so many of the funniest bits and jokes and replies. Just small accounts that are just maybe have like twenty five followers, and it's like it's like Kami Kid Six Nine or something. Just like a total throwaway thing. It's almost like there's this Vietnam wall of like suspended funny accounts that we all love that, that are never long for this world because they'll get, they'll get zapped for making fun of somebody. I would say those are the, those are my favorite accounts. Ones whose handles I can't even remember. Yeah, it is, it is incredible. And it just, you know, it goes to show like, you know, that Howard Zinn was right. Like there is this enormous untapped like creativity and happiness in all of humanity and Twitter has provided an outlet for it by people who just like they're living their lives and something funny occurs to them and they say it on Twitter and it gives them the opportunity, you know, to have an audience of thousands. Yeah, totally. It's the, it's the people that post for the love of the game, which people like me will never be able to say because my work is wrapped up in it. You know, I'm posting my news articles. And so that's always mixed with um, what it is that I'm talking about, but just people that have, absolutely no stake in it <laughs> and what what they end up saying on there is always endlessly fascinating to me because their motives are so pure yeah and that also includes people who i think are 100 percent out of their minds you know <laughs> who, who believe stuff that to me is preposterous but to them like clearly is a core part of their identity and presumably there are always people like this, like in the population of the United States, but I had no idea. I had no idea they were out there. And so Twitter opens this window on, you know, these, these strange corners of the population of America where you just like, wow, I I didn't know people like this existed. Like before Twitter, I truly did not know there are people out there thinking these things, Uh, but there they are. And uh, they are not kidding. Yeah. I think there's been a backlash against that kind of thing and a lot of effort to, I think a lot of the tendency towards some of the more extreme forms of content moderation and censorship is because they're seeing some of these things, which can be horrifying sometimes. But to my view, I'm, I'd prefer that it kind of be out there so we can all see it and keep an eye on it. And in, in a way, I'm glad that I know it exists, even if it's, you know, evil or wrong or whatever, just so that I can have some sense of like what they're up to and, and like, okay, here's a problem that we need to respond to instead of just, disappearing into these recesses of, you know, obscure message boards and things that I think it probably existed in prior to Twitter. The, the like fact that, you know, so many people are on that platform, I think has always been one of its strengths. And that's not to say that, you know, it's like stuff you agree with, but just to, just to get a sense of like how varied the attitudes are, um, which as you said, I, I had no appreciation for before some of these platforms emerged. Yeah. And, you know, just for instance, like this is so uh, actually kind of run of the mill that I hate 
even mentioning it, I would like to find something more unusual to talk about. But just like, I did not know that there were Nazi furries. Yeah, the an- the anime Nazis. Yeah, they're in. Fl- it's all in flux too. There was a period where they all had Greco-Roman statues for their effies. Do you remember that? <laughs> That's right. I, I do indeed. <laughs> That's the other thing I realized is like how mutable people's attitudes are. And in a way it's encouraging because I've seen accounts over time that I've seen for years really change views sometimes for the worse, sometimes for the better, but it really does show you that it's like things are not really fixed. Like we can probably persuade people to think differently than how they do. Um, and so, yeah, things are a lot less set in stone than, than I, than I used to think. Yeah. And just just as a venue for human creativity of all kinds, uh, Twitter has demonstrated, again, I'm really showing my age here, but when people uh, first started getting answering machines in their homes, uh, they would come up with their like little Twitter-like jokes for their outgoing message, a lot of which were not necessarily all that funny, but some of them were hilarious. And that's pretty much true for anything human beings do, where like 90% of it is going to be garbage. But the rest of it, really may be astonishing. And so there is just this untapped creativity within the vast mass of humanity that when given an outlet will like just erupt in all kinds of ways that are absolutely unpredictable. One of my favorite Twitter users for sure is Patricia Lockwood. I don't know if you're, you're a Patricia Lockwood uh, appreciator, but I sure am. I'm not familiar. Oh, wow. Well, that, that I'm telling you right now, you've got to follow her. She is a poet, and you can tell from the way she uses language uh, in her tweets, but she is hilarious. And one of the things that she invented that a lot of other people picked up on was a, a tweet form where uh, she will say, like, sexed, colon, and then she will say something that is so incredibly peculiar that like truly only her mind would have come up with it. And uh, uh, one of them, like here's what, like one of the few ones that's like probably clean enough for us to share it with a larger audience was she tweeted years ago, like sexed Yates gets naked for me. I grab his spare gyre and ride his rough beast. At the end, I, <laughs> at the end I scream so loud that the Falcon can't hear shit. <laughs> and so that is, uh, like funny in a million different ways. Like, like it's, it's a, it's a poetry joke. And like, w- where would she have placed this poetry joke? Uh, like before the existence of Twitter, there'd be nowhere. It's like, like I'm going to submit this to the New Yorker. Of, of course that's not going to happen. So somebody like her was able to, to like, like deliver like the unfiltered contents of her brain uh, directly to a wide audience and develop a big audience. And, you know, I think that she has had books published probably just because she was on Twitter and editors were like, oh, wow, you know, this is a weird, funny voice. Like, let's get some more stuff by her. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of people like that. I mean, I don't think I'd be a journalist if it wasn't for the platform. It did. I don't know. It's weird. I I go back and forth on this a lot because in some ways the internet's been corrosive in the sense that it's it's made everything real time and and there's much less reporting that doesn't function on a 24 hour sort of news cycle where you're just reacting to things in real time. That's bad. And there's less ad revenue for, you know, there's, there's fewer subscriptions for newspapers, which is bad, but then it's, you know, created a much more horizontal landscape in terms of the number of people that are able to like write for things before you had to be, I didn't move to Washington until pretty recently. I've lived in Midwest for many years and it seemed really New York DC dominated prior to the, 
prior to the rise of these social media platforms. So yeah, it's been a lot of positive effects. And so just lastly, what do you think will happen like if Twitter goes away? I, I think there are going to be all kinds of terrible effects. Well, it's, I'm trying to think of what would replace it as a text, two, two, two uh, features. First of all, it's being a, a primarily text-based medium. And second of all, the horizontal nature of it where you can reply to anyone directly and then show up in their replies, like that might seem simple and it is, but if you compare that to a lot of the other platforms like TikTok or YouTube or Facebook, um, they don't permit that. There's there's nothing like that. I mean, the the so if you look at these video-based ones, there's no text, like the TikToks of the world and YouTube. And then you look at Facebook and the idea that anyone would see your reply is kind of a joke because it's so, you know, focused on on you know pictures and and um, just what the initial post is. That losing that ability to interact horizontally with basically anyone, I wonder how are we going to antagonize powerful people? And that was really my motive for getting on Twitter in the first place. And and I guess most of my interest in the platform generally, I, I can't really picture how, any other extant. Um, social media platform that could play that role. Yeah. So I guess, I guess both of us are just pleading with the people like, like when Elon Musk drives Twitter into bankruptcy uh, next week, the people who eventually buy it out of bankruptcy, like, like a consortium of thrifty Canadian and Swiss banks. Uh, just, just please, please save Twitter for us. Like we don't know what we'll do without it. So, so Ken, thanks so much for talking about this. Uh, maybe uh, there will be more Twitter drama. I suspect there will be more, and uh, maybe we can talk about that when it happens. <laughs> Sounds great, John. Good talking to you. That was Ken Klippenstein, investigative reporter for The Intercept. And that's our show. Deconstructed is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our producer is Zach Young. Laura Flynn is our supervising producer. The show was mixed by William Stanton. Our theme music was composed by Bart Warshaw. Roger Hodge is The Intercept's editor-in-chief. And I'm John Schwartz, a senior writer for The Intercept. If you'd like to support our work, go to theintercept.com slash give. Your donation, no matter what the amount, makes a real difference. And if you haven't already, subscribe to the show so you can hear it every week. Also, please leave us a rating or review. It helps people find the show. If you want to give us additional feedback, email us at podcasts at theintercept.com. Thanks for listening. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. 
and United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.